This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 5th, 2020, the Wash Your Hands edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I have not maintained, have not maintained sanitary conditions, not maintained corona hygiene, because John Dickerson is here in the studio with me, forming, forming a disease vector, possibly. Hello, John Dickerson of CBS. Oh my God, we, of the three of us, John minutes. is the least likely to catch the virus and the most fastidious, so you're in good hands being in John's so, but John, I know, I but he John's has washed his hands, hands more than both of us combined. I've washed my hands a lot, but John's, John's, John is risking himself. I, right, I'm the one that who should be... I should be participating yeah. in. He's so- touching the table right now, which is like touching my face. I think <laughs> uh, that other. Vo- Hello, John. Hi, uh, hi, David. Sorry for that graphic image. That other voice over there was Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. On today's Gabfest, the Democratic Party strikes back, catapulting. Pew, pew, pew. Joe Biden to the front of what remains of the pack. Thank you, John. That was good. <laughs> then the coronavirus pandemic, how it will shape the world, how it will shape politics, how it will shape the economy. And then a wild week at the Supreme Court. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Before we get to our first topic, just a quick announcement. We talked last week about a live show that we plan to do at South by Southwest in a couple of weeks. Just an update that because of coronavirus concerns, we will not be doing that live show at South by Southwest on March 17th. So we are sorry to miss you, Texas and South by, but we will get you later. So uh, dip me in honey, invite the flies in to come eat me. How quickly, quickly, quickly things have changed. I had, of course, predicted something terrible happening to Joe Biden. And lo and behold, John, here he is. What happened? How would you describe the extremely rapid transformation of this race, the elevation of Joe Biden, the consolidation of the moderates, the revenge of the party? Well, it's it's I think this is true. I've been uh, searching my recollection, as they say, the briskest, most amazing rags to riches story in politics that I can think of. We've had individual moments where people who were left for dead came back, but not the way I mean, they were giving him last rights. And then he wins South Carolina. Then he wins 10 of 14 on Super Tuesday. The delegate math is Biden 527 to 475. That's undoubtedly likely to be uh, surpassed by the time you hear these words in your um, in your ear bones, because California is still counting um, and they will still be counting um, delegates in California until 2028. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, it's, it's really amazing what happened. And, and 
briefly, because we'll get Paul through this in the whole segment, but basically what he did was he not only defeated Bernie Sanders, but he did so uh, with a pretty diverse coalition. He increased turnout in places, as opposed to Bernie Sanders, who's actually got a turnout issue. And I think the most important thing is that he convinced Democratic voters that he is the more electable and can beat Donald Trump. In Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, for example, if you look at the exit polls, basically about 60% of the voters said they wanted somebody who could beat Donald Trump. In those groups, Biden beat Sanders by either 20, 30, or 40 points. And the reason that's interesting is in national polling, public opinion polling, when you do head-to-heads, Sanders and Trump versus Biden versus Trump, it's all roughly the same. They beat Trump by a couple of points. So there's no there's no numerical evidence that that Biden is more electable than, than Sanders. But boy, has he convinced Democratic voters of that. So Emily, as John said, rarely has politics moved so fast in one direction. Do you think this was simply the anti-Trump anxiety coalescing or was it part some sense of an establishment? The party actually has control and could could uh, organize people and marshal them into a into orderly voting patterns. I mean, Biden has a lot more endorsements from people who represent the establishment in the party. So to the degree that voters follow those signals and, you know, Klobuchar and Buttigieg dropping out was obviously part of that kind of momentum. I think the voters understand on some level something that lies beneath the head-to-head polls, John. Um, and I wonder if you agree, which is that Biden's positions are just more popular. So, you know, on health care, on immigration, on a variety of fronts, if you're just looking at policy positions, Biden has liberal but well-tested positions and Sanders has positions that are just not shared by a majority of the country. And I wonder if, you know, we're not going to get to run the experiment of having them both be the nominee. But when I look at them, I think as people really dig into this more and understand what this person's ideas are, will there be more resistance to Sanders because his ideas are just not right now as well accepted. So you have to both get the country to go for this guy who calls himself a democratic socialist and also to embrace policies like Medicare for all that, you know, whatever you think about the merits, and I happen to think like universal health care is a good idea, but the how you get there, the how realistic it is, the how big a departure it is from the status quo, those are like big ifs for Sanders. And Biden doesn't have those problems. He has other problems, but not those problems. But John, I want to ask you the same question I just asked Emily. Is this, was this a grassroots movement where voters sort of spontaneously of their own accord were like, oh, whoa, we got to do something mm. about this? Or was this something that was, that is like, because Klobuchar and, and uh, Buttigieg dropped out, was it, was it, was yeah. it top down or bottom up? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, and I don't want to lose your point, Emily, about about policy. So we'll come back to it. But I think what happened on Tuesday, um, what we saw in the exit polls, and this is across the country, which is interesting because a lot of times you'll get pocket results and then it's hard to extrapolate national messages. But the late deciders, uh, and this is particularly true in Virginia where there was no early voting, the late deciders went, went in droves towards Joe Biden. Now, why did they do that? Is it because they were <clears throat> newly afraid of of, of Bernie Sanders over the last couple of weeks um, as he started to do well. So this was a negative vote against Sanders. Was it that they were reacting to South Carolina? Joe Biden did well. Hey, take a second look at Joe. Or was it this uh, extraordinary uh, event where you had Klobuchar, uh, Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke all come to Biden's support? Sort of, you know, they, they got together and built a bandwagon and then everybody jumped on it. 
what's interesting about that is that we've talked on this show and there's been discussion in political science about this notion of the party decides. After the political parties lost their strength, there was nevertheless this view that there was a kind of um, a signal that party poobahs sent that ended up picking candidates. Hillary Clinton would be a perfect example. So there was no longer a top down from a party, but the, the message got through. Well, Donald Trump destroyed that on the Republican side and Bernie Sanders was doing a pretty good job. Somebody who doesn't even call himself a Democrat on the Democratic side. But the party decided on Tuesday night. And so I think it was both. I think it was both organic response uh, to Sanders of the kind that Emily was describing. And then also clearly that signal that, um, you know, people we like, by we, I'm talking about voters who said, oh, I like these kinds of candidates. They were all rushing behind Joe Biden. I think it is a mistake for moderate Democrats for Biden supporters, of whom there are not that many. I mean, there are people who are voting for Biden. There aren't that many Biden supporters. I think it is a real mistake for them to assume that this is over or even close to over. Not because he's not in a strong position, but he's an appalling campaigner. You can imagine like some terrible stumbles. You can imagine him just like really botching stuff. Not I mean, I think the, there's a sort of sense like, well, we're we're just going to agree, we're going to hold our nose. This guy's the this guy's the, the guy we're going to settle for. But you, something could happen. He could have a health issue. There's so much, and for me, this is remains the best argument for keeping Warren in the race, for keeping some other some other option, because because with a 77 year old and a 78 year old fighting it out. You know, and a, and a disease, a pandemic raging across the country that's going to strike down old people. Uh, you can you can really see that there, this is not something a Democrat should be like. Okay, well now we can now we can just go back and and uh, watch Love Is Blind and not worry about anything else. Two quick reactions, and then um, one is he—he's not that unpopular. He may not; people may not rush out of bed. Although, good gracious, they sure did in these polls. That's what's amazing but, is that his turnout numbers are better than Bernie Sanders. But they're not for—they're not—they're like yeah. But it's not because they're Biden. It's like I love Biden this? so much. It's sort of I don't know what. Don't, there's more evidence like in the contrary this, case. Like I don't think. I mean, this is true on like lefty Twitter. Uh, I don't think it's true in the world. It's I don't not think we lefty have any Twitter. It's that. not lefty Twitter. It's just mm-hmm. like. But it's he did he turned out voters better than Hillary Clinton did in 2016 versus Sanders. I mean, it's like people don't show up at his rallies. He's not he's just not like a. But they showed up just, where it mattered at the polling. They place. showed up at the but, polling they, place because they're voting because they are very concerned and they're voting out of concern, not because they're like Joe Biden really turns me on the way Obama did or the way Sanders did, does or the way even Warren does or Buttigieg does. Like, but, it's, well, here's but it's how like, I've been. Well, I reluctantly this. am voting but, for him. But, but, He's but, fine. But, but I think you've got it wrong because if you look at Sanders, there's enthusiasm at rallies, but his there's a ceiling. I mean, first-time voters yes. in in yes. Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and Nevada yes. decreased. First-time voters yes. decreased yes. in those places. Yes. So. I, and Biden, again, was the one who increased uh, the vote relative to its previous time and relative to Hillary Clinton. So the evidence is because because if you were right, people were like, ah, yeah, Joe, they don't get out and vote if they think, ah, yeah, Joe, you got to like something's got to propel you. And it's not crazy to think that it's some tr- portion it's of- fear of Trump. It is a desire to beat Trump. But Emily, that could be powerful. Sorry. I mean, one way I've been worrying about this, and I'm sure other people have made this point, is that when you think of the wave of young people who are so excited about Sanders, and I mean, the generational divide in the um, vote was incredible, right? I mean, young people 
really going for Sanders overall and older people going for Biden. The idea that those people have what it it takes to, like, knock on doors and get out there and make it exciting, I mean, that kind of energy, David, I do worry that some of them are just going to, like, pull back and then the organizing part will be less. Although I have to say, like, Biden won in states where he didn't even have a field office. He wasn't even campaigning. Yeah, and in no state did people younger than thirty account for more than twenty percent of the electorate. So yes, they were big for Bernie. But there are a few of them, and this is always what happens with younger voters. It's always what happens. It's why now let's not take away from Bernie Sanders. He did make real inroads with the Latino community. He had a lot more trouble with African Americans. But but again, if if Sanders' argument, I mean, this is a good night for Biden, but also there's evidence in all the contests so far, as even the ones that Sanders has won, that his idea both for his electability, but then also for his governing strategy, which is that he's going to create, he's arguing, I'm going to make such a movement, I'm going to beat, win, beat Trump, and then change politics in Washington because of the size of the movement. In order for that to work in any of those three instances, you actually have to have a movement that is gobbling up voters and bringing in new voters, and there's no evidence that that's happening. So I want to spend a couple of minutes uh, on Elizabeth Warren, who's apparent defeat to, who, as a Stands now, John. She's still in the race, yes? She is. She's still in the race. Hang on gone. a second. No, you're, you're, you're skipping over Mike Bloomberg, your guy who dropped No, we'll get to him. Oh, hey, no, no. He's no, we're going to get to him. We'll get to Mike Bloomberg. We're going to okay. get to Mike Bloomberg. Okay. Don't worry. No, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren's um, uh, dislocation to third place and, and a sort of distant finishes makes me incredibly sad and angry. Um, and I just... Uh, want to register how sad and angry I am that it, that it's she's smarter she's like incredibly well qualified to be president and I cannot she is a victim of a sexism among voters and a fear among voters that they, that they don't want a woman running and it's it's just not fair it isn't fair and it's wrong can I uh, including coming in third in Massachusetts do you think that holds in her own state as well so I can I can or do you think it? it yeah, it, that that's all that that's it's at people, play. It's strategic voting. Everyone mm-hmm. is strategic voting, and she's a victim of it. And part of part of it is we want to coalesce around somebody who, you right. know, the candidate to beat Trump, and that means forestalling Sanders and any vote that isn't for that candidate who's going to win the nomination, which we now declare to be Biden, is a wasted vote. And therefore, even though I might like Warren, I know she's not going to win. So I don't want to but I don't want to undermine Biden by taking a vote away from him. That's part one. And part two is there's a strategic voting, which is people don't want to vote for a woman because they're afraid of what's going to happen if a woman runs at at this time. They want it in safe hands. They want the safe person. I just it makes me sad. Emily, doesn't it make you sad? I no. Uh, uh, it's funny. I've sort of I haven't been feeling a lot of emotions about any of this. I've just been sort of watching it because it's so fascinating. I can't. I don't know what that says about me. But I think that you're you're cold, cold and dead. Uh, cold hearted. It's true. I think you're correct about the influence of sexism. I don't think it's the only thing going on with Elizabeth Warren. I think there is a way in which her Harvard identity transcended her Oklahoma roots. Um, There was a piece in the Times about this phenomenon this week, and I think it's right that the I Have a Plan for Everything, which, like, got her a ton of love from political writers and pundits and um, other folks like that, it 
even though she always tells these Oklahoma-based stories and they are very real and authentic and it is her experience, she, I think, still seemed to a lot of voters like she was more in teacher mode than in like Betsy next door mode and that that was part of why she didn't take off. But why But why does she not get to do that? Obama gets to do that. Obama got to be that same professorial person and, and was allowed to be that and also be perceived as warm and exciting. It's There's something about being a woman that doesn't allow you to occupy both those spaces at once. Yeah, I also feel Let like me, comparing uh, people to Obama uh, is like comparing people to like the god Zeus. Like he's just had such superior political skills to yes, everybody else. That's true. I said, mm. Anyway. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions about Elizabeth Warren because I think it's it's very interesting. The um, I mean, one of the things that happened on Super Tuesday is, we, is three things that people thought might matter didn't. One is Mike Bloomberg's money didn't matter. Tom Steyer's money didn't matter either. Field organization didn't matter either because there are places that Biden had nothing and, and where he did very well. And plans didn't particularly didn't particularly matter, which is which is part of the Warren piece of this. What I wonder is um, on the Warren front, what you do seem to be describing, David, was both sexism, straight up sexism, and then sort of sexism by proxy, which is I'm not a sexist. I love Elizabeth Warren, but everybody else is. And therefore, I'm going to do that. Question then is 33 percent of liberals in Massachusetts voted for Warren, self-identified liberals. Thirty three percent self-identified liberals voted for Sanders. Are those lib- self-identified liberals who would pre- you would presume would be the most um, uh, worried about sexism, the most uh, untainted by it? Maybe uh, what? Are, why are they voting against Elizabeth Warren? Is it all strategic? I'm just I'm trying to find out what, if anything, um, is else at play here because I think the while sexism is no doubt huge and per- and probably the biggest. Uh, knock against her. If if it all gets written down to sexism, I think that's wrong. I think there's other stuff to identify, and I just don't, yeah, I, don't know I agree with is. that. And I don't think you can fault the Bernie Sanders supporters for sticking with him. Like I don't think that no. the choice between Sanders and Warren is a choice that's about sexism. Like he stands for something right. really particular sure. and strong, and he's been saying it for forty years. And it's a ceiling, but it also means the people who are with him are really with him. But for sure. And I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about myself. I will probably vote in the D.C. Democratic primary if for some reason as the D.C. Democratic primary approaches and it's very close between Sanders and Biden and Warren is still in the race. And it's clear that Biden is going to need a little help to to close the deal before the convention, even though. I would much rather vote for Elizabeth Warren. I will vote for Bernie Sanders. Well, this is where we should have ranked choice voting. So it wouldn't feel as stark a choice to you. And you'd be able to express multiple preferences. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about Mike Bloomberg, actually, too. So, uh, Emily, $500 million, he got nothing out of it. Or did he get nothing out of it? Did he, he, in fact, weaken Sanders, who he really wanted to weaken, and set up an organization that can battle for voting rights, that can fight for whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be, as long as it's Joe Biden, I guess, um, and fight for swing Senate and House seats? I mean, certainly he didn't spend that $500 million in the most direct way to accomplish things other than getting himself elected. He may have weakened Trump somewhat with some of his ads. He may have weakened Sanders somewhat. He has to be careful in turning over his organization to Joe Biden to not to violate campaign finance laws. Like there were a lot of election law professors whose response was like, wait a second, how exactly do you plan to do well, all campaign of this? Campaign finance laws, which are really being enforced so well these days. <laughs> well, Why not just violate them? Violate 
violate there, them, perhaps there might still be There's no penalty. FEC quorum. I thought there was no FEC quorum. There is no there FEC There would be a quorum for this. <laughs> no, I thought <laughs> No, they, I mean, wouldn't... Oh, I guess can't... No, can't, I, think I don't they think can't, they can, literally can't do anything. They can't literally so can't do anything. Yeah. Well, okay. still, I don't know. Anyway, um, I have trouble because I have a visceral feeling of rooting against Mike Bloomberg, so I don't feel particularly dispassionate in my analysis of this. To me, it seemed like super embarrassing and deserved because his money was out there, his ads well-produced were out there, and he was terrible on the debate stage and, you know, too bad. Also, one of the things we found from the exit polls is um, <laughs> the more people got to know him, the less they liked him. He was the least popular candidate in many of these states. And it wasn't just um, mild dislike. He was very successful at, at uh, breeding antipathy for himself. The, what's interesting in terms of whose vote he takes and all of the rest of it, um, in the exit polls, it also showed that, that uh, Bloomberg – almost certainly siphoned more votes from Biden than Warren did from Sanders. So now that he's out of the race, that's probably better news for Biden than if Warren got out mm-hmm. of the race would be good news for Sanders. And the final thing is he it's there's an interesting line I think with Michael Bloomberg which is when he's not the face of his own movement it does well, which is what they learned with gun uh, safety, and and that when he stopped being the face of it, it started to be quite successful. If he employs all of that organization and the knowledge that comes not just from being in the political space, but also being in the grassroots movement space on climate and guns towards beating Donald Trump, I think that's something Democrats who might otherwise not have liked Michael Bloomberg might be uh, might want to reconsider as a useful um, weapon against a president they don't like. That's a that's a really interesting point because he is he is that's a great point. He's very effective and strategically he's he's used his money incredibly well. Um, someone was telling me who was a kid who was volunteering on the Bloomberg uh, campaign. There was the a kid lunches. volunteering on the Bloomberg campaign. Yeah, Continue that's what on. that was my initial response. In Connecticut, he was just paying people who were then having meetings with local politicos, at which they said things like, "Well, Biden's good too." Anyway, go ahead. Um, but the, the, anyway, apparently the free lunches were insane. That it was like they had this Middle Eastern lunch that was like a feast, a Saudi royal feast. <laughs> it was uh, sounded great. Um, he's an American hero. I think if he continues spending his money in this way on these causes and in okay, this way. Okay, come on. He's he an just spent $500 hero. million dollars on a failed effort to win American Samoa and you're calling him an American hero and saying that he's spending all his money well? Like, come on, you got to recognize that this was ridiculous. No, it was it was vain. It was an effort. It failed. It was not ridiculous. We've had this com- we've had this the debate way- the last three shows. It's not hubris. The man was Mayor of New York, he's eminently qualified to be president, and he botched it. He did a bad job. Also, it's not crazy. Let's imagine that Joe Biden didn't, you know, um, that he continued to stumble or things didn't turn out well. There would be Bloomberg's viability as the alternative to Sanders would, out of necessity, uh, seem less ridiculous than it does now that he's out of the race. John, do you think there are people who never got in? I mean, I know it's so easy when they never got in, but like there's been this sort of nostalgia or wistfulness about Sherrod Brown, about Mitch Landrieu. I mean, Steve Bullock did try to run like these various more. Well, Sherrod Brown's not well, a governor. I was going to say executive types who seem like they could have been the alternative to Biden. Uh, alternative to Sanders, you mean? I'm sorry. No, alternative to Biden. Like the if Biden oh, falls but, apart uh, scenario. Right. Well, alternative to Biden 
in the slot of alternative to Sanders. Yes, um, yes. Well, I think Sherrod Brown was really interesting because he kind of, um, he the argument people made for him is he could operate kind of in both camps um, that, that he has a, and by the way, wait a minute. One of the things that, that about Joe Biden's victory on Tuesday night that is a challenge for Sanders is that in places like Virginia and Minnesota in particular, which is interesting, Biden won with white non-college voters, which is to say blue collar voters. Sanders talks all the time about how he's working class people's uh, candidate. But if you add black and white to working class, um, Biden does better. If you look at just white non-college, he does, he gives Sanders an absolute run for his money and sometimes beats him in places. I, the reason I say that is I was just thinking about Sherrod Brown. That was his argument was that he could do well with working class voters. I, you know, the, the, the thing is, for any of those other candidates you mentioned to, to be an alternative to Biden, they would have to basically have the pain threshold Biden had. I mean, staying in a race when you don't have much money and you're getting your ass handed to you across the country um, when you were supposed to be the electability candidate is actually a really hard thing. Not a lot of people have a lot of tolerance for that. Um, so so I don't know. Biden, you know, suffered through a lot and it's paying off for him. I think the candidate we missed out on this race was Oprah. I really would have oh, loved God. an Oprah campaign. I, this is I would so have loved it. ridiculous and tedious. <laughs> I really just – that is ridiculous. Oprah's run a lot more than Bernie Sanders has ever run. A lot more. I do more. not want someone who has And no has had a lot more influence over public debate than Bernie Sanders probably. She has lots of influence over public debate. She's I think actually Oprah's been awesome. more of an executive than Joe Biden has ever been. Anyway. Dear America, are you interested in what it takes to really make a good president? How much has celebrity taken over the office? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Available June 9th. Available June 9th. The hardest job in the world. The hardest job in the world. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. By John Dickerson. (laughs) Oh, yes. Right. Right. All right. Now, my actual final question is. Is, is there, John, a strategy left for Bernie Sanders? He yeah. immediately turned to kind of a unification, like a, towards you know showing Obama in his ads, start to try to be – feel – instead of trying to destroy the party, which had been kind of the message of his campaign, towards more a, you know, I'm all – I'm part of the party. I'm – well, he's got kind of one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake because when he came, he's been saying. I've been teaching my son to drive. He wants to do that. It's so terrifying. <laughs> what like, happens? You can only use one foot. <laughs> one foot. <laughs> the car. The, you the brake, car. but it's like not <laughs> good. Right. Yeah. Because because you're also sending the signal to the car that it needs to go forward. So, um, well, you know, he is still running against the establishment. He's still arguing that everything from the corporate media to um, uh, the kind of entrenched Washington and Democrats and lobbyists are against him, um, and so he's pushing uh, away a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the elites in the party. Um, and then on the other hand, as you say, he's talking he's talking about things that uh, the Obama stuff in his ads is, is an attempt really to get at some of those suburban voters he's had difficulty with, try to make himself seem a little bit more um, uh, palatable. But the but it's at odds with his brand, which is "damn it, I am who I am," and and that's why you like me. So and I'm and I think he's I mean he's going after Biden quite hard um, on trade, on Iraq, on on Social Security and Medicare, and I think that will um, des- devolve. I think into something quite m- much more vinegary, and then we're going to get into a question of how ugly will it get, and and will there be permanent damage. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton's people are still quite sore that that uh, Sanders waited all the way till July. Um, and so whoever the loser is on this, you know, they can make it uh, they can make it pretty bloody. John, I need a 
I need a breaking news update. <laughs> While we were just taping this segment, Warren dropped out. Reaction, Emily Bazelon. You know, now I do feel sad. <laughs> we are not going to have, in all likelihood, a female president in 2020. And I guess I sort of already thought that, but um, but now it feels real. And that part really does make me sad. Do you think it says anything about the our politics and its ability to handle the um, – the detailed plans of the country was talking about. You think about um, uh, Governor Inslee, who ran on a pure uh, global warming platform. He got nowhere. Does this say anything larger about the ability to talk about um, policy in detail and whether that really gets you anything in a, in a campaign? Right. I think, yeah. I think its a chief value is, as a, is signaling. Mm-hmm. Like the idea is not that people actually want to hear what you have to say about policy. It's they're like, oh, wow, this is a person who's capable. But then she did get hung up on – the problem was then when she went too detailed around Medicare for all, it really put shackles on her. And uh, it was a mixed blessing. I think the, the, the planness didn't matter as long as no one was reading the details of the plan. It just signaled this is a really capable person. So that would be my It got her a lot of momentum last spring, right? I mean, a lot of press coverage, a big push. There was a moment where she was soaring in the polls. And then I think it wasn't enough. And maybe that's because of her position on Medicare for all. Maybe it's these other less tangible factors we were talking about or just the fact that Sanders supporters proved to be really, really loyal to him. I'm not sure. But it, it does signal that, like, the plan is not the chief thing. Let me ask you that, but you both this question, which is if you are Elizabeth Warren and or someone who has her interests in mind, what is the route that maximizes your ability to uh, influence the things you care about? Do you go with Bernie Sanders, who's cared about the same things his whole life, but who also has a lot of his own ideas about that kind of thing and might, if he gets elected, would would be maybe a competition with him to get those things done, although you might work hand in hand and go forward with that, or sign up with Joe Biden, who wouldn't mind your support right now, for the promise of position X in the in the uh, administration, you'd have to fight against a kind of more moderate, slower group of people. But presumably, you're in a position right now to ask for something. You might be able to lock in a position that would give you influence. What do you guys want to do? Ladder. I mean, head second. versus heart. Yeah. The second. Biden, obviously, which is head. I'm not even sure that's her, her head. I don't if I'm not sure. She may her heart might be with Biden too, for all I know. Oh, I don't think I don't know. I don't think her heart's with Biden at all. But I do think when I imagine a Biden administration, it would be much better for progressives if Elizabeth Warren had a powerful position in it. I'm not so sure that we couldn't have a woman president in 2021 because I think there's a non-zero possibility that one of these candidates dies. I'm just saying, like Trump. One of the Democrats and the the woman running mate gets the presidency. Just saying, you are you know, the, with the the usual plots reliable prediction. We'll see. Slate Plus, you get bonus segments on the Gabfest and other Slate podcasts. You go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus to become a member today. And today we're going to talk about pandemic fiction, pandemic fiction that we like um, representations of pandemics in the culture. Speaking of pandemics. COVID-19, the coronavirus, threatens to be a global disruption unlike anything the world has seen in our lifetime. I think supply chains have been disoriented. The world economy is grinding slow. 
gatherings across the world are stopping. Travel is slowing down. More than 300 million kids are out of school around the world. The pandemic has spread across continents and is now clear with, uh, I think, more than 10 deaths, 10 deaths when I wrote this, that the disease has a strong foothold in the United States and is spreading quietly and probably inexorably through our country. So, Emily, we have talked about containment. That would seem to be the strategy the United States was pursuing, prevent the disease from getting here, make it get here much more slowly, get here only in a controlled fashion, stop anyone who seems to be showing signs of it from getting in the country, contain them, quarantine them. Uh, That containment no longer seems possible. So what does that mean for us? It means that we really should have had a plan B, and we should have been thinking about the alternative strategy of mitigation, which means testing and treatment and quarantine. We should have been thinking about that all along. I hadn't really read very much coronavirus coverage for about a week. I'm not someone who I, I, res- I resist long-tail risk. I'm sort of like President Trump in that way. I would prefer that it all just be minimized. But that seems like a huge mistake in this case, and it just seems like the combination of the president's resistance to talking about not even worst case scenarios, just like poor scenarios, combined with the fumbling at the CDC where they botched the original testing kits and didn't send them out and had very narrow criteria for who got tested. Like now we are really at much greater risk than we might have been. And I Couldn't help but connect this to a piece that George Packer wrote in The Atlantic that went online this week about the kind of crumbling of the bureaucracy and this feeling that it's taken a while for Trump to really destroy parts of the bureaucracy. Packer was writing about the Justice Department and the State Department. But I feel like it's proving to be true about Health and Human Services and maybe the CDC as well, where you see instead of a sort of science fact-based, what's best for the country response, you see people trying to placate Trump, who wanted it all to go away, and you see all this incredible infighting in a way that has made the government's response much less effective. And I find that really alarming and upsetting. Well, Michael Lewis wrote a whole book about this mm-hmm. called The Fifth Risk, which is all about the the growing incapacity in government for project management, because when things get politicized and when incompetent people are running things and when science and sort of logic and analytical reasoning are thrown out the window, all those things are lost. And you know, David, when we have presidential campaigns, we only care about the guy at the top. But it turns out being president means you run an organization. And we never talk about that kind of stuff, Emily. Available June 9th. Books <laughs> retailers near you. Um, you know, Great. the thing about um, Michael's Michael's book, which is does exactly what you say, David, and, and but, but what has been the case in the Trump administration so far when we've talked about talked about systems breaking down or norms breaking down the um, the evidence or uh, oftentimes it's theoretical um, with the exception of what happened um, at the border with separate family separation um, although that in that case the family separation was it was an acute policy choice made in the moment. What's different about this is it is it's there. It's a long term thinking that is required in an administration about what are the biggest, most important things that can ruin my life. When I interviewed uh, Condi Rice for the book, um, she said what you should ask every candidate is what surprising thing is going to hit you and what are you going to do about it? Because that's what being president is. And if you don't think about that beforehand, you have this kind of situation. So what happened here is you had not only 
Um, I mean, before you ever get to the actual way in which the administration responded to this specific challenge, the National Security Council's uh, pan flu group or their plan for handling uh, pandemics was um, was shrunk, was, was the, the, the staffing was cut. And that group was set up basically in the wake of Ebola to try to deal with these kinds of global issues, which basically become a national security threat and at least have somebody ready there for this kind of thing when it happens to start all the kind of coordinating that you need to do between all the different, a very weird, weird way to say coordinating, um, <laughs> across all the different kinds of agencies. Um, so you have, so you're weak. The structural stuff you're supposed to take care of when nothing bad is happening is weak. And then when the when it, when it goes bad, this over-politicization of the response and the constant weakening of public trust in the president, which is another one of those long-term erosions that now has a problem. And the down, and what happens now is this isn't just about some norm that's been transgressed. This is about you know human lives and safety and the economy as well. I mean, there are real things that can be counted for the decisions that were being made. I, I want to say that I do think that the Trump administration has has handled this terribly, and and all the criticism the is being heaped on them for both the the structural bad response and the the particulars of the the bad response and the lies and the misleading all well deserved there's a whole other piece of this which is that we have a health system which seems maximally designed to not uh, deal with this in a strong good way so uh, a whole society people don't have sick leave so they keep showing up at work even though they don't feel well. They're afraid to use their benefits because they have such high deductibles. They show up to get tested for something and discover they are negative for this but walk out with a gigantic bill. They're not going to want to go get tested where it's the, a, a non-centralized system so the tests don't get distributed, so that information doesn't get shared very well. I mean there's the, the maximum way that this could – go wrong, it's going to go wrong. I mean, I think it's in contrast where you look at countries that have highly nationalized top-down health systems are probably going to handle this outbreak a lot better. Now, they, there may be other things they don't handle as well, but but I think there's a reason why why we should be particularly scared in the U.S. It's a, it's a, it's a health system that is, it is, that doesn't have the resilience and the and the, the capacity to deal with this. And in fact, scares most people are scared to be in it. They don't want to be in it because it costs them so much money. Totally. And that compounds all the weaknesses John was talking about. And then on top, you have Trump, you know, Wednesday night going on Hannity saying that he has a hunch that the death rate is far lower than the World Health Organization believes, suggesting it's okay for people to with coronavirus to go to work. He like mixed it up with the flu at one point. I mean, Come on. Like, this is a real thing that is going to kill people. And it doesn't matter whether Trump turns out to be right or wrong about the lower death rate. The point is, like, right now, you go with caution. You go with the scientists. Staying with what Emily is saying for a moment, David, your point is exactly right. And there's a downside to thinking so much of this is a result of Donald Trump, because then what you end up doing is when you assess what went wrong, you just say, oh, it's the idiosyncrasies of the Trump administration, and there are systemic issues. And and, and if you want a self-interested reason, reason for universal health coverage, it's that 
if other people are in the health system and are habituated to seeing their doctor as a part of some kind of universal health care, it's easier for them when they feel symptoms to go through whatever their channel is to health care, which therefore presumably mitigates some of the risk. Whereas if you've got 27 million people that haven't gone, that haven't had health insurance for a year, you've got a system that can't very quickly manage these kinds of, of problems. But to, to, um, to your point, Emily, you know, when we, we have a hurricane coming, we've become used to seeing the president sitting in a room getting briefing. He's wearing a, a, you know, a rain slicker with the presidential seal on it. And the idea there is he's getting a bunch of new information and that all information is going to help him make decisions or at the very least turn him into the best public administration officer, uh, public information officer. In this case, you have the president who has been briefed, presumably, saying three or four things that are not just factually bonkers compared to the having, I mean, just if you're a regular person, but also having talked this week to health experts, they're just totally wrong. And in this case, it's not just wrong because the way he's wrong about tariffs and who pays for them. But in this case, he's spreading information that is actively hurting the efforts that his entire administration and the entire world are moving in direction A, and he is moving in direction Z. It's it's kind of extraordinary that um, that this is happening. And because people have become kind of used to it with the Trump administration, we should think about how far this is from what we normally expect from a president in times of crisis. It's clear this disease is going to enter our population at scale and will spread. And as I understand it, the, the best metaphor I've heard or the best description is we want to flatten the curve so that we, what we want is to make sure that not everyone gets it at once, that rather it gets spread out. It happens over time so the hospitals aren't overwhelmed so that that you know, a certain number of people are getting it. The sickest people can get the hospital care. Those of us who don't get very sick are able to take care of themselves at home. You want to distribute it and so that it becomes much more like the flu, the seasonal flu is, where there will be lots of deaths and lots of people affected. But it, it isn't massively overwhelming. And the best way to do that is less contact, more hand washing, you know, no, you know, less large gatherings, people staying home when they're sick, you know, doing, the, doing the hygienic v- mitigation, you know, not not exposing old people and very young people, well, old people, especially to uh, lots of interaction with each other. Are we as a society disciplined enough to carry those things out? I mean, you we've discussed this. We've just canceled a live show that we were going to do because because of essentially because of this or is as a whole is the nation ready for this and capable of it is it capable of it i mean i think we're capable of it i have some real doubts right now i don't want to add to the sense of panic by speculating because i feel like i just don't really know the answer and we're just gonna have to see you know, we lack a channel for modulated response in our lives and particularly in our public lives where where somebody with authority and at this and it should be the president because they're the most popular person in America um, or the most well-known, I should say, not the most popular, but they are the most well-known person in America who can distribute useful, informed um, information in the public good. That person is not playing that role. And what the, the, the difficulty is both because of the role the president has played in the previous three years undermining public trust in traditional institutions and also what he's doing in real time because now somebody's being told by their HR department, you know, if you got if you don't feel well, don't come into work. And they hear, but the president said it's fine if I go into work. Well, that's actively undermining what needs to take place, David, for what you're talking about. And so I think our capacity 
is shrunk and also by the time we might might go oh gee maybe we really should start listening i it's quite late because it's incubating it's spreading through the community it's snowballing um and this is the cost of of having an inability to kind of be measured and say hope for the best prepare for the worst and that's not being panicked that's just being prudent do you guys touch your faces a lot? I don't even know if I touch my face. Oh, my God. I touch not my sure. face constantly. Ugh, totally. Uh, I I don't – I am not a constant face session, but in this in this m- moment of heightened mindfulness, I find that I I, um, I rub my eyes a lot. Uh, yeah. Actually, you know, now I think about it, I do, I rub my beard. Yeah. Um, I've, have you all been um, engaged in uh, commerce with other human beings in which the handshake has been yes, put gone, aside for something gone. else? Elbow a lot bumps. of elbow bumps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love a fist bump, but I'm not. I'm not sure if fist bumps are okay. I don't think they are. I mean, they're probably yeah. not better. No, I think, but, it's but still can flesh, I, right? If I if I could just get a someone to weigh in on this, we've all been taught to weigh, to sneeze and cough into our elbow. But then if we're all elbow bumping, then aren't we? Mm. Well, you don't cough into your outer elbow. You well, I, do you think it all stays contained well, into yeah. the crook of the elbow? The uh, the, uh, the crook of the outer part is very well protected. What I like is the, the foot other. kicking. I bet you people Bowing just didn't is touch nice. each other because they were spreading all those germs. Like maybe that's what bowing yeah. didn't know. were about. They didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know about the germ theory Maybe until Maybe they sort of ago. did. But it's not that yeah, hard had, to right. figure out that if someone sneezes on you, you might be able to get sick. Oh, that my God. They totally like didn't no, no, figure no, it out. They weren't that – they did not know it. No, that's why they would go from the autopsies to the surgery room and kill everyone. Yeah. I guess that's true. Or the they morgue. Sorry, the morgue. They all over each other with their leeches. Okay. I like in Wuhan, they're, um, they're kicking. They, they like touch feet. They, huh. which That's I like. Cool. It, it, it looks basically like they're kicking an imaginary soccer ball. Um, oh, I like it. Yeah, we're playing like an imaginary that. game of hacky sack. You do, but I think uh, I think coordination in the social space is good. Um, by the way, as somebody who's been a fan his whole life of social distancing, uh, <laughs> I, I, you're I, in heaven. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm with you on that. I realize this isn't this isn't something to joke about, but I did when that word started. I started to see that word showing up a lot. I. Um, I, I, it took me a moment to process it. I'm finding it painful. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There is a lot going on at the United States Supreme Court, Emily. There's a lot of social distancing there, too, I suppose. <laughs> they... They took a huge uh, Affordable Care Act case that they'll hear arguments on in the fall. I guess before – they'll hear arguments before the election, right? I think so. Maybe not. No, not and then, clear. It's not scheduled yet. Yeah, maybe they'll schedule it so they don't. That would be typical. Uh, and then this week they heard an argument on one of the most contentious important abortion cases we've had in a while, a reprise of a case that they already decided a couple of years ago. And then there's a little – rebuke of Chief Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, excuse me, rebuking Democratic Senate leader Schumer for remarks that he made. Schumer just walked them back, I noticed, uh, on my headline feed. Good. Why don't you start with the this abortion case, Emily? What What is it? Why did they hear it? And where does it look like it's going? This case is called June Medical Services versus Russo. It's from Louisiana. Louisiana passed a law requiring abortion providers, that is doctors, to get admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles of their clinics. This is um, identical, effectively, to a provision in a Texas law that the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. The reason the Supreme Court struck the Texas law down is that the American Medical Association, the American College of OBGYNs, like everybody, says that there is no health benefit to women from doctors having these admitting privileges. Why? Well, one reason is that if you have a complication from an abortion, you just go to the emergency room. You don't need your doctor to have admitting privileges. Like, you can get the care you need without them. The second reason is that abortion, statistically speaking, is incredibly safe. So in this Louisiana case, out of the thousands and thousands of women who've received uh, abortions at the three existing clinics in Louisiana, only four have ever been admitted to the hospital. And indeed, one of the reasons that abortion-providing doctors have trouble getting admitting privileges is that the hospitals have a rule that you have to have a certain number of patients admitted every year to make it worth it to them to extend this to you, and they don't qualify because their patients don't go to the hospital. So that's like a sort of lovely catch-22 in this. The really interesting moments at oral argument on Wednesday involved Chief Justice John Roberts. So Roberts voted with the conservative minority in the Texas case to allow Texas to continue this law. On Wednesday, however, his questions repeatedly to both sides were about whether the benefits of the law could differ from state to state. In other words, if you have all these national health care experts weighing in and saying there are no benefits to women's health, could that be different in Louisiana than in Texas? And 
no. The answer was no. And the Louisiana attorney general and the uh, Trump administration lawyer who were arguing in favor of the law kept trying to assert yes, but they didn't have any evidence. And so if Roberts truly cares about that, then he would vote with the liberals to strike down Louisiana's law, respecting precedent from the Texas case. So I so we'll the, sorry, just just to understand the chain of log- logic there is. So the Louisiana law is the same. The benefits, the, the, the so-called benefits of the law would be the same in Louisiana. In Texas, the Supreme Court has already decided those benefits don't justify the law in the case of Texas. Even though Roberts disagreed, he thought it did justify it. Roberts is simply, even though on the merits he believed the Texas law was legit, the the merits of the law are not as strong as the fact that the Supreme Court there's a Supreme Court precedent in against the law. Well, actually, Roberts didn't exactly say he thought the merits of Texas's law were okay. He voted to uphold it based on a number of related issues. The other part of the argument is about the impact of the law, right? So there's like, is there any benefit? The answer scientifically is no. But then there's this question of impact, like will Louisiana's clinics have to shut down because their providers won't be able to get these admitting privileges? Two of the three Louisiana clinics say, yes, we will have to shut down. Part of what happened at oral argument that was also interesting was the the justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, um, Breyer, they were Kagan and Roberts. I mean, all of them. They were really read up on the record, and so they were asking very specific questions about the particular doctors involved. Had they made sufficient efforts to try to get these admitting privileges? And the Louisiana Attorney General seemed like she was not super familiar with the record. She was asserting facts that were actually at odds with it. And that probably did not help Louisiana. Emily, are there direct assaults on Roe coming that the Supreme Court will hear? Will hear? Because this is not a direct assault. This is a sort of indirect, let's undermine it, weaken it. Yeah. So one of the most interesting aspects of abortion politics and law right now is a split among pro-lifers. So there are pro-life strategists who, for decades have been arguing that this incremental erode row tactic is the way to go. Let's claim that abortion actually hurts women. Let's try to marshal evidence that will support wrapping clinics in red tape like this admitting privileges law and shut them down that way. And this sure is seems like to be working. Last- it sure seems like the real good strategy. Well, it it has seemed like a good strategy, except that it failed in 2016. Justice Kennedy didn't go for it. If it fails now with Roberts, I think that will be the end of this strategy. And it'll be interesting because it's quite an elite strategy. Like it's the lawyers, the litigation folks, not the grassroots um, anti-abortion movement. The grassroots anti-abortion movement is all about the heartbeat bills, which are like Let's make abortion illegal, you know, when women are six weeks pregnant, they don't even know they're pregnant yet. Like, that's the end of Roe. And, you know, there's some people who think that what Roberts doesn't like about this Louisiana law and the strategy behind it is it's all about deception. It's asking him to say, like, oh, don't look at all this medical evidence and, like, look at this pretext we've created for you. Isn't it lovely? If Roberts doesn't go for that, and it's kind of like how he didn't go for it in the census case, potentially, I mean, he could still change his mind. Let's just make that clear. But if he doesn't, then it's going to be full on like, okay, well, let's just present a case to him that says abortion is wrong. This was a terrible mistake. It has always been a mistake all along. And we're going to try to present the court with a kind of a straight on attack on access to abortion and the constitutional right to abortion. 
Is there a useful inconsistency, or maybe this is a um, nitpicking? But if your if your pretext is that you're concerned about the the health of the mother from the abortion doctor's medical um, skills, implicit in that is that the process is kind of going forward. Um, so you're 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 you're, t- you're choosing to have your argument further down the road for people who are not uh, in support of abortion rights. And therefore, implicit in that is that it's kind of okay to have gotten that far down the road, that everything would be okay if you just had doctors who were who had admitting privileges and everybody could be safe once this procedure took place if something were to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh sort of took that line of questioning on Wednesday. He said, well, imagine a state where all the doctors have an easy time getting admitting privileges. Wouldn't this law be constitutional because then it wouldn't be an undue burden on women's rights? And that suggests exactly what you were saying. I mean, I think the sort of stealth tactic is that in states where there's hostility to abortion, the local hospitals don't grant the admitting privileges for a variety of reasons. Um, but yes, you're right about the indirectness, and and that is in some ways a political problem. And I think that's why the grassroots pro life movement has been reluctant to sign on to this. It just feels to them like it's conceding way too much. Like, wait a second, this is murdering babies. This is bad. We should leave this up to the states. And you're, you, I mean, there already are those heartbeat bills passing. The question will be how to tee up the next case for the Supreme Court. Are the people not getting admitting, admitting privileges really just? doctors who perform abortions? Or does it actually end up sweeping in a whole other set of doctors who don't perform abortions? They, they, do they really just end up targeting this because they want to stigmatize those doctors? Oh, it's targeting these doctors. It's a requirement for performing abortions. And so part of the scientific resistance to this is that there are all kinds of riskier procedures that doctors are not required to have admitting privileges for. Uh, Chuck Schumer said, oh, man, I can't now I can't even remember exactly what he said, but he he sort of said, he said unkind things about you're going to pay a price to Kavanaugh and Gorsuch well, pay, pay. in an individualized way. It was bad. Yeah, that they reap the whirlwind and now they're going to they, yeah. they unleash the you whirlwind should, and now yeah. they're going to reap the whirlwind you, or something. Anyway, so something mm-hmm. and then you reap the whirlwind in the Bible. Yeah, I guess Kavanaugh but, so, said something about sowing the whirlwind in his in his confirmation hearings. But yeah, Schumer went after them personally. It was, a, I think, a real mistake. I hated to see him do that. Well, he uh, he has said it was a mistake. He said he, something like, oh, I misspoke or misinterpreted, whatever he it was. He shouldn't have done it. And, you know, I will say, I mean, I think that Chief Justice John Roberts was like well within his role to scold Schumer about it. It also should be said, though, that last week Trump was criticizing Sotomayor and Ginsburg personally, and Robert didn't stick up for them. Now, Trump's comment wasn't the kind of pay a price sort of rhetoric that just seems really dark, but it was hypercritical. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let listeners think about whether Robert should have stepped in in that instance as well. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, you have been thinking and talking so much about the Supreme Court. When you're having a drink, surely you just want to relax and talk about some great TV show you watched or some book that you're reading or some funny thing your kid said. What are you going to chatter about today? I'm going to chatter about another Supreme Court case because it was a really important case. Another really important case was argued this week. This one involves the independence of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is, of course, the Uh, agency created to protect consumers that is Elizabeth Warren's baby. Republicans hate it. 
And they have gone after it by arguing that the way Congress created it was unconstitutional. Congress said in an effort to protect the Bureau from politics that the president can only remove its director for cause, defined as inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance. And the argument is that this limits the president's power too much. The argument at the court was noteworthy for two reasons. One is that there are a lot of other examples of federal entities created with for-cause firing. They don't happen to be single-head agencies the way the CFPB is, but does that really matter? So given the precedents that have allowed the court to uphold those previous um, appointment structures, uh, liberals on the court like Justice Kagan seemed very skeptical of the claim that this one is unconstitutional. However, Justice Gorsuch, got, who is a big believer in vast presidential power, got quite testy with Paul Clement, who was defending the structure of the CFPB. And this is kind of interesting because Clement is normally like a hard-charging lawyer for conservatives. But in this case, because the administration took the – the Trump administration took the very unusual position of refusing to defend a law that Congress has passed – Clement was appointed to defend the structure of the CFPB, and Gorsuch just got really testy with him in a way that seemed kind of surprising and showed that, like, emotions are running high among the conservatives, probably against this agency. So, you know, this is a wonky question, but it's going to have a big impact. If the way that the CFPB's head is appointed is unconstitutional, it's possible that the Supreme Court could just say, like, goodbye to this agency, which would be really dramatic expression of judicial power. So we're going to have to wait to see on this one. Well, and also just a further step towards the coming executive dictatorship where the president – the unitary executive has total control over the executive branch and and all of its agencies in some shockingly unlimited way and where it also doesn't have to answer to Congress. So that's where we seem to be. That is very well said. I'm glad you added that. Thank you. John, what is your chatter? Well, I have two chatters. Uh, the first is a new podcast um, called LBJ and the Great Society. And particularly as we're talking about um, – well, what's a presidency for? Um, it's a really uh, in-depth look at um, at Johnson and and the efforts to um, expand healthcare access and fight poverty and um, basically all the the great society programs that were ultimately swamped by Vietnam and also some of their own internal challenges. Um, but it's it's hosted by Melody Barnes, who knows something about this, who is the chief domestic policy advisor under the Obama administration. Anyway, I recommend it to anybody. And the other one is a piece that I read in um, Outside Magazine. It's How a Shipwreck Crew Survived 10 Days Lost at Sea. I always find those kinds of stories deeply fascinating because it's really when the total veneer of civilization gets pulled off, um, what do we resort to and how do we behave? My view is, given the expectation that that might happen, why really go out on seafaring vessels? 100%. <laughs> um, and now, of course, they're just huge Petri dishes uh, when you do it in a, in a, in a cruise context. But um, anyway, it's a well-written piece. It also has a very interesting ending, which I liked, some very colorful metaphors or at least descriptions of what happened uh, on this one particular voyage. So Eric Barton is the author, How a Shipwreck Cruise Survived 10 Days Lost at Sea on OutsideOnline.com. Yeah, I do not understand how humanity made it to any of these islands, why we're not just all just living on the 
continent of Africa? Like, why would we ever have? I guess you could get to you could get to Europe and Eurasia without crossing an ocean. But man, why bother? Not worth it. Don't do it, guys. <laughs> David Platz does not like the water and never will. <sighs> My chatter is an alarming story. It's actually the kind of the flip side of a story I talked about the other week about a plant that people hope would be a CO2 sink that you could plant in sub-Saharan Africa. But a story in the Washington Post about rainforests, tropical rainforests, which have been long relied upon as huge sponges for carbon dioxide and that there is this way in which when there's more carbon dioxide in the air, it prompts growth in tropical rainforests and and uh, so there's a more more lushness, more growth and and these forests serve to reduce the huge baleful effect we're having by pouring so much CO2 into the atmosphere. And it turns out that that effect is declining rapidly. So it used to be that rainforests absorb 17% of the CO2 we put out. It's now down to 6% and falling. And the reason is that drought and heat are making it harder for trees in these tropical rainforests to grow as well as they had grown. So even though there's more CO2, which should help them grow, the drought and heat is uh, countermanding that order. And it's very alarming. It's a really alarming. And it's a study that was done in a, under incredibly difficult circumstances in African and Amazonian rainforests. And it's uh, terrifying. Listeners, you continue to send us very nice chatters this week, a lot of really good chatters that you tweeted to us at, at Slate Gabfest. And I'm going to mention one from Chip Nold, who points us to a piece in Vox about Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell, who apparently in the 1960s and early 70s went underwent a kind of late life transformation, possibly abetted by a, a, a second marriage that he made, um, where he became much more conscious of of uh, inequality and and racial inequality in the country, and became almost more radical in his present depictions of American life in ways that also made him unwelcome on the pages of some of the magazines, which he had been famous for doing covers for over many decades. So it's a really good piece about a person who, who came to a, a, a change, a political change late in life. Usually people, when they get older, get more conservative. Norman Rockwell did not. If you enjoy the GabFest, please subscribe to the show. You'll, you'll get new episodes the minute they are published, maybe a minute later, maybe two minutes after they're published. I don't even know. In any case, you can get that wherever you are listening to our podcast. You can surely subscribe to it there. Please do that. That is the show for today. The Gaffest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Rosie Belson helped us here, John and me here in D.C. And Dan Cody, new, new GabFest community team member is helping Emily in New Haven. Welcome, Dan. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast, and June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. I just realized I described myself as being from Atlas Obscura. I'm not from Atlas Obscura anymore, but we'll leave it in. I'll fix it next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You probably have lots of time to listen to podcasts. I hope you're not sharing your your ear pods with anybody. I hope you're keeping those separate. I hope you're listening alone in a in a sealed chamber so that you're not getting the germs of anybody else. But the coronavirus made us think about um, 
all this kind of pandemic culture. There's been a lot of pandemic culture in the world over the past couple of generations. Zombies are a form of pandemic culture, if you think of zombification. Uh, but there are a lot of been, been a lot of books. There's been TV shows. There's been movies. And I wanted to talk about favorite uh, bits of pandemic culture and why they spoke to us. Anyone have one they want to start off with? John? Well, I don't, I, you you all are um, much more well read than I am, true. And so the road oh, that's is so the only. Not true. It, well, I, was, I just I was just saying I was just I'm just off in some. You room. are. I'm off in a little room uh, of the. You all are much more. You have a much more breadth. It's um, the but road? Uh, but but now that the book is <laughs> is done, I'm going to be coming in here talking about popular fiction. And I'm going to be talking about cookbooks I've read. The you latest guys aren't show on know. Disney Plus. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be so interesting. Anyway, the. The is the road. I can't remember. Is, is it a pandemic or is it cannibalism or something? Well, or the, it, I don't think it's pandemic because I think the disaster that is described in the road is not a pandemic. I think it's like a. It's not ever specified, but yeah. it seems to be nuclear. It okay. seems to be. It's environmentally destructive to all the plants and animals too, and it's the, it, like I think there's a description of bombs. I did think about. It. I mean, the, the road is the. the like the book that affected me most in my whole life. And I know I can't. I don't want to go back and reread it for fear re-read that it, it won't. Yeah. For fear that it won't live up the <laughs> first time. Oh God! I want to. I want right to reread it for fear. Right. I don't want to go back and reread but it for just for pure fear. You know, there's something you said, David, 15 years ago, I think, when I once said that there was a leak in the house, and you said it's like having a spy in your house, which is. You don't know where these when these pandemics and in this what I think the propulsive force in this literature, which I haven't read and am now about to make a judgment on, is that it's it can be everywhere and anywhere, and it's it's a it's stealthy and it's um, it gives everybody a hunted feeling, but you don't know where the arrows coming from, and so it reminded me of what you said about oh, having a that leak. was a good metaphor. I yeah, yeah. Know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember I've, saying that. It stuck with me, but um, anyway, so. Now the road, the guy the road is, the, I mean, the road is the best of those books. It's so terrifying. Station Emily, 11 a, is also really oh, good. I mean. But not so grim. Yeah, less grim. But in some ways that makes it, I mean, I think the road is an amazing book. But I, the thing about Station 11 is because it's more in this gray zone in which people are still trying to live and travel around, it seems more possible, right? Like my response to the road is like, I want to be the dead wife. I don't – I mean, I also don't want to imagine my children suffering, but, like, I have no interest in living in a post-apocalyptic universe. Like, zero. Right. Whereas Station Eleven, it's more like, huh, could you still find some reason to survive here because maybe it will be okay in the end? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.